0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at DeRoshi-Meyer.org.
1: Please open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 17. We are walking through Jesus' Bible We are in our, if I calculate rightly, the 33rd week of walking through Jesus' Bible. And today we're going to, Lord willing, close the book of Kings. Solomon's rise, reign, and disobedience gives rise to the division of the kingdom, which opens the door for this downhill slope of demise in both Judah and Israel, 723, God, through His instrument of Assyria, overcomes Samaria, destroys them due to their sin, and that's where we find ourselves today. 2 Kings 17. The demise of the kingdoms and the fall of Israel. Just a little overview to remind us where we have come. We have this period... Uh, From Rehoboam and Jeroboam the first, all the way up to Ahab. At Ahab, the narrative begins to focus on the prophetic ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And as soon as they come in, all of a sudden we begin to hear words of God explicitly. And it helps give clarity to the message of this book. The original readers, it appears, are those who are in exile, separated from God's presence. They've experienced the destruction of the temple. It seems as though God is not able, nor is He willing to protect His people. This is God's problem. He's left us all alone. Here we are in our own desert wasteland, and this book is written to say, no, God has not left you. You left Him. Your sin pushed you far from God. God is being as faithful to His promises as He has ever been. Not only to bless, but also to curse. Because God takes sin seriously. He must, because He is a holy God. But as we're going to see today, He not only takes curse seriously, He takes blessing seriously. And this book will not let us end on a destructive note. There's going to be this beacon at the far side of the tunnel. A light that's going to be there to keep Those who are willing to hear the message of this book, to turn from their sin, to turn from the hardness of their hearts, to cry out, God, I am evil and needy. Please, is there anything you will do to help me? And God's answer, where there is true repentance, there is always true mercy. That's the glory of the Gospel. And we take our hope in it today. So the ministry of Elijah and Elisha from Ahab and Asa up to Jehoshaphat and Joram and up to the exile of Israel. So that's where we come today. And we're going to look at this chapter, 2 Kings 17, and it provides for us something that we rarely see in the historical books. When we're reading the narratives, usually you and I are left to just know our covenant so well that when we're reading the covenant history, it's able to give us clarity. We're able to read Moses, we know Moses, we've saturated ourselves in Moses so that when we're reading the story we're able to judge whether something is sin or whether it's obedience. Whether this is a good thing or whether it's a bad thing. But the narrator is not jumping in, the sermon is in, the, is in a story. And we don't get to hear the sermon too clearly. We, we're left to really wrestle in and, Try to figure it out, what's good and what's bad. What does God want for us? But, but in this chapter, the narrator pauses from telling the he said, she said, detailing the events, and he just pauses here in 723, is the, the timetable, and he says, this is why Israel in the north experienced exile. So let's take a peek at what he has to say. 2 Kings 17, verse 6, In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halach, and on the Chabor, the river Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. And they all followed in the ways of Jeroboam I, worshipping at Bethel, worshipping at Dan, and taking Jerusalem Not at all is important. God's presence doesn't really matter. I'm not as needy as He says that I am. And they experienced exile. Much like Adam and Eve before them. Kicked out of their paradise and now separated from the presence of God. Verse 7 enters in to give us clarity as to why this happened. 7-12, through unpack it this way. It was because of sin. And this occurred, namely the exile, because the people of Israel had sinned against Yahweh, their God. And then, in order to put a stamp on how serious this is, He's the very God who intruded into space and time and had rescued you from Egypt. You were once in slavery and God brought you to freedom. And now, you've let yourselves enter into slavery again. You've turned from this Redeemer And you've feared other gods. You've walked in the customs of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel. You've walked in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. So they did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. So right away, there's been stuff that's been being done in secret among those who claim to be the people of God. It's been behind the doors locked up in the closets of their lives, and all of a sudden, what we read in this book is that God knows. He knows what's going on. What you think is secret is not secret. He's unveiling it right here. What you do when you think your spouse is not noticing. What you do when you think your boss isn't noticing, God is noticing. They built for themselves high places in all their towns. I just want to get closer to that God. I want to work and climb and worship. But it wasn't God's way. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every hill and under every green tree. Echoes of Deuteronomy 12. The very things that God had said not for them to do. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations whom Yahweh had carried away before them had done. They did wicked things, promoting, provoking the Lord to anger. Sustained sin brought about separation from God. And what is true for Israel here is going to be true for all the world. This is just one more picture. It was true for Adam and Eve when they got kicked out of the garden. It was true for all the, uh, the majority of the peoples. God preserved a small remnant who's hoping in the offspring of promise, who would come from the woman and defeat the serpent. But the majority of the world, as we see in the expansion in the days all the way up to Noah is rebelling against God so that in the year of the flood, Noah was the only one left, and then God brought judgment on them. The same thing happens with Sodom and Gomorrah on a small city level. God's fire rains down because of the debauchery and the ugliness. Then God said, the Canaanites, their time is up. Judgment Day comes. It's like the future Judgment Day intruded into the present and all of a sudden, fire, death. Generations pass and Israel begins to look like the very people they were called upon to kill. And if you turn on God, you become the enemy. Nothing's changed. And the great day of the Lord is still coming. It will come like a thief in the night for those who are not ready. But for those who are awake, who are aware, who are dependent, who are surrendered. We're told it will not come like a thief. In fact, you can hope for that day. But for Israel, they're anticipating the day. And it would not be light for them, it would be darkness. And that day of the Lord that's awaiting all mankind intruded upon Israel in 7.23, and it was their judgment hour. So all throughout Scripture, the day of the Lord is pictured as He the great warrior intruding to overcome His enemies. And the exile is exactly what that is. He's overcoming his enemies. Israel has become the enemy of God. They've turned on their husband and they're running to other lovers. God takes sin seriously and the only thing that can save one from that day of the Lord that is coming is if Christ takes on Himself that day of vengeance on our behalf. That's it. The cross event, what we are pondering and mulling over this week, celebrating Sunday comes only because Sunday comes because Friday came. And what Christ undergoes on Good Friday is nothing less than the very day of the Lord, and we'll unpack that as we walk through the prophets, that that's how they were envisioning it. They were envisioning the day of the Lord as a day of sacrifice. Atonement, Leviticus type atonement, happens regardless of who you are. Sin will be atoned, God's wrath will be appeased, whether on the sinner or on the substitute. And the day of the Lord is God's wrath being poured out on the sinner or at the cross on the substitute. And everyone in this room has to face that day of the Lord. Either Christ will die on our behalf, we will be in Him, or we ourselves will experience the same fire and anger and wrath that Israel experienced because sustained sin. Unrepentant Sin that went unrestrained and undealt with. Number two, 13 through 17. It wasn't only what they were engaging in that was the problem. It was the fact that they were being unresponsive to God. I have a student who's working on a THM thesis, a Master of Theology thesis. He's writing his first book, a 100-page book, on a biblical theology of disability. And one of the things that he's recognizing is that we need people who are disabled. The day may come, and it may not be far off, where the only place that we have disabled is in the church. Physically disabled. Why? Because they can check and see if they're coming, and then they wipe them out before they ever breathe. Except in the church. Why would God ordain a world where the disabled exist? Who made Madden's mouth, Moses? Who makes him him deaf or dumb or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Why would God do that? And then he turns around and he uses this kind of language. Verse 13, the Lord warned Israel and Judah, mercifully sending them in the midst of their rebellion, prophets, seers, saying, Turn from your evil ways. Keep my commandments and my statutes. Follow me. I'm where life is. Why are you going away from me? Away from me is death. So God sends preachers, calling them back to the covenant, calling them back to relationship in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by the ser- my servants the prophets. But they would not listen. They were deaf. Deuteronomy 29.4 says, God did not give Israel eyes to see, ears to hear, or a heart to know. He uses the very language of disability. And my student What he's seeing is that God gives people with physical disabilities in order to help us recognize our own neediness. Just as marriage is a picture of a greater reality, of Christ's love for His church, and the the unending, tenacious reality that marriage is a parable, physical disability in this world is a gift for this world. It's a parable signaling... Neediness. Our own neediness. For me, growing up in a home with two brothers who had Down syndrome, two of them, that was a gift to my soul. To see their neediness is is to be a reminder to me of my neediness. Neediness to rub shoulders with them, puts a spotlight on my own selfishness. It's supposed to humble me and move me to the God who is able to overcome disability. Israel was deaf. They didn't listen. The words were there. The prophets were preaching and they were sitting. And yet... There was no response. There was no change of heart. There was no humility. There was no brokenness. Instead, there was callousness. There was secrecy. They were running and not embracing. Because of that, the exile came. Look at how it's worded in verse 14. They would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not, what? Believe. The Old Testament is not a works-based covenant. God said, you're not believing and that's a problem. You're not trusting and that's a problem. You're just like your fathers who didn't believe. Remember Numbers 14.11. How long will you not believe? And that brought about 40 years in the wilderness and all of that generation dying because they didn't believe. Believe what? Not just believe God in general, but that's a start. You have to have confidence that He exists. But then you're believing promises. You you put your faith in a God who has said, I will show up. I am big enough. I am able. You trust that He's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek Him. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. How much do you want to please Him today? For he who comes to Him must believe that He exists. You don't pray unless you believe that He exists. And then you you move ahead, trusting that His promises matter. That He is not only able, but He is willing to do what He's promised for all who are dependent on Him. Israel didn't believe. That's what it says. They were just like their fathers. Oh, the beauty of 1 Peter 1, 17-19 that says, you've been ransomed from the feudal ways of your forefathers. What kind of heritage do you have? Many in this room don't have a good heritage. You look back and you weren't raised to treasure Jesus. Peter says, you've been ransomed from the feudal ways of your forefathers through the precious blood of Christ. That's what has the power to break it. You don't have to be like your father was. You don't have to be like your mother was. It can stop with you. You can see a a marriage that lasts. It can happen for you. Even if you had no model. Because of the precious blood of Christ... You've been freed, ransomed from the feudal ways of your forefathers. Israel, you didn't have to be this way. But you failed to believe. They despised the statutes in His covenant He made with their fathers and the warnings that He gave. They despised them. They didn't heed them. They went after false gods. And the result? They became false. Look at how it's worded. Uh, let me see. this is not planned, but it will I can do it.. Not to us, O Yahweh, but not to us, but to your name, give glory. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. The idols that they craft. They have eyes, but they can't really see. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't really feel. Feet, but they don't walk. They make them look like a living thing, but they are ultimately not living. They do not make a sound in their throat. And then this profound statement. Those who make them... Become like them, so do all who trust in them. What you revere, you will ultimately resemble, whether for restoration or for ruin. If you live your life going after empty things, false things, things that don't last, things that don't satisfy, you will find your own heart getting choked up uh, with unsatisfaction. You go after things that weren't designed to give you contentment, you will become an uncontented person. Things that weren't designed to satisfy and fill, you will become empty and dried. What it says, they went after what was false, and they became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom Yahweh had commanded them, that they should not be like them. So they abandoned all the commandments of Yahweh their God. They made for themselves metal images, two calves. They made an Asherah. They worshipped all the hosts of heaven. They burned their sons and their daughters. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels and have not love, it's a zero one plus one is zero if there's no love. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't bring anything about. You can even give that which is most precious to you. If I give my own body to the flame and have not love, it profiteth nothing. They must have been trying to earn the favor of these gods. They think, if I just give this, this is of value to me. It will mean something. And it meant zero. Zero. In God's book. In fact, it was horrible, misconceived. So what did they do? End of verse 17. They sold themselves to do evil in the sight of Yahweh, they provoked him to anger, and therefore Yahweh Therefore Yahweh was very angry with them and removed them from his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. And then it says, what was true of Israel became also true of Judah. And it sets us up. So this book, we're coming down to 723. Israel's going to be wiped out. The the top northern ten tribes are all going to be gone. And what this says is that the tentacles of Israel's sin had reached down into the southern kingdom, into Judah. And what was true of the sister was becoming more and more true of the southern sister. Judah also did not keep the commandments of Yahweh their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And Yahweh rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers. And when he had torn Israel from the house of David, so this is now the synthesis of the problem. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat, the king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following Yahweh and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in the sins of Jeroboam. They did not depart from them until Yahweh removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Meaning they haven't come back yet. We're still in that window between 586 and 538 when Israel gets to come back to the land. So they're in despondency, they're feeling separated from God. And God, This book is written to say, it's just a signpost, one more act of mercy. He gave them all the prophets, they didn't listen to the prophets, so God kicks them out, and yet now He even gives them another mercy. He gives them a Bible, He gives them scripture. Somebody writes all this down in order that they can learn how much mercy the Lord has. An amazingly long-suffering God. That's our God. Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Good. The remaining part of chapter 17 talks about how the Samaritans came to being. I mentioned that a few weeks ago. The Assyrians took all but the poorest of the poor... And it was the poorest and the poor that were then there interacting with the servants of, in that northern kingdom, the servants of the Assyrian rulers. So they took all the Israelite rulers out and they replaced them with Assyrian rulers. And those Assyrian rulers saw a really pretty poor... Jewish women and they began to interact and intermarried and they become the group we know as the Samaritans and they they play into the future of Israel quite significantly. But now we turn to the next unit. Israel has fallen, but Judah is still here. 150 more years, they're still here. And yet they have similar problems, but but the book won't let us end with trouble, 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 trouble. What it does now, right toward the end of the book, is it's going to highlight the reigns of two individuals. One, Hezekiah. The other, Josiah. Josiah, Hezekiah's grandson. And two individuals Through whom God gave beacons of hope for a people running from God. So here's here's the overview that gets us up to 586, 586 years roughly before the coming of Christ. The reign of Hezekiah, the reform of Judah, and the ministry of Isaiah, chapters 18 through 20. Intervening wickedness and the certainty of Judah's destruction, chapter 21. The reign of Josiah and the recovery of the law and the reform of Judah in 22 through 23. And then the end of 23 to chapter 25, the final years, Judah's captivity and Jerusalem's fall. That's where we're headed right now. So what I have chosen to do is camp on one of these stories to try to help us hear the message of hope that would be ringing in the ears of those who are dead Not dead physically, but dead spiritually. Far from God, and now even physically reoriented in Assyria. Hear what this story has to say. I've summarized it as the need to believe in the Lord and not doubt. And if you find yourself in the rocks today, feeling the waves banging you, banging you, and you're just hitting those rocks over and over again, that's your life right now. You feel that inner tension and the promises of God are being called into question. Will He show up? Is He big enough? Is He big enough to work in my spouse the way that I need God to work? Can He show Himself worthy enough of my spouse's trust and perseverance? Will God prove Himself in the midst of my son's rebellion? Will God prove Himself in the midst of my own sickness or the sickness of my loved one? Will God prove Himself? Is he worth trusting? This story is like an exclamation point at the end of this book of sin, 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 sin. God cursing, God cursing. And all of a sudden, a beacon of bright, brilliant light shoots out of the text. Let's read it. The setting, the context, here it is. Look at verses 5-7 through seven in chapter 18. Hezekiah trusted in Yahweh, the God of Israel. He trusted so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to Yahweh. He did not depart from following him, but he kept the commandments of Yahweh that Yahweh commanded to Moses. And Yahweh was with him. Beautiful. Wherever he went, he prospered, he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Don't allow yourself, we were told by Moses in Deuteronomy 17, to align with those foreign nations. Don't build up military power on your own, acquiring chariots and horses. And also, don't allow your marriage harem through military alliance, international alliances, to be expanded. Multiple wives are not good. Don't go there. And instead of paying tribute to Assyria, Hezekiah breaks off that relationship, and that plays into the story now because Assyria didn't like that. They want taxes. They want money. And Hezekiah has taken a big leap here to obey the Word of God. Will he obey And trust only in God and not put His trust in princes? Those who think they have power, but they ultimately have none? Who are as dependent as everything else in this world upon God, allowing them to wake up every morning? Who will you trust? That's the question in this text. Will you trust what the doctors say? Or will you trust the Lord for your future. Verse 8 uh, chapter 18 11 and 12 this so it's along Hezekiah's trust is now contrasted with this. The king of Assyria had carried off the Israelites to Assyria and put them in Halah and Habor, the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. Why One more emphasis. Because they did not obey the voice of Yahweh their God, but they transgressed His covenant. So there's the contrast. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord and God was with him. The entire nation of Israel was exiled because they failed to keep hearts that were surrendered to God. They did not obey the voice of God, but they transgressed the covenant. Now... Verse 13, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and he took them. Hezekiah king of Judah sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, full stop. Assyria in the north has moved down and they are visiting all the nations that are for them and they're absolutely overcoming all the nations that are against them. And now he's in the southwestern border city of Lachish. Now I pause here to say that... I I pause here to say that... um, Lachish shows up outside the Bible, specifically on the walls of Babylon, or walls of Nineveh, rather, in their temple, because Sennacherib went back after this battle, and he had reliefs created. It's where you have a wall of stone, and you draw a picture in it with a chisel. And he created reliefs of his battle against Lachish in Jerusalem. And we can watch everything he did on these walls. And so it has a parallel to this exact story that we're about to read. Now, let me just pause and ponder. What am I looking for? Cities and routes... Here's Jerusalem, southwest border city of Lachish. And the king of Assyria has moved down and he's planted himself here and he's overcoming that outpost. I'm just going to run through this quickly. Here you see a battling ram in his fight against Lachish. Here you see his archers. Here you see his sling throwers. Here you see the result. We read that he took heads after he had impaled the bodies and he chopped off all the skulls and he piled them up for everyone who would walk by to know this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, does to all who rebel. For those that weren't warriors, he dragged them off all the way to Assyria. Mothers, children, and they came before him, the mighty ruler in Assyria, and paid him homage. Sennacherib's in Lachish. And now Sennacherib sends his military general, the Rav Shaka, up to Jerusalem to taunt. Eighteen, nineteen. say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Remember, Hezekiah broke off all, all alliance with Assyria. He's no longer paying them, paying them tribute. Who do you think you are? On what basis do you put this trust? Verse 25. "It is without Yah Is it without Yahweh that I have come up against this place to destroy it? Yahweh was the one who said to me, "Go up against this land and destroy it." They believe in multiple gods. And now he's actually claiming that the Lord's the one who told me to do this. And you think that you're going to stand against the Lord? This is high, powerful rhetoric. However, we're to understand it. Verse 30, Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Verse 32, Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his, his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamad and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim and Hena and Hiva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? nation after nation after nation, every one with its own major god. And when armies would battle, just like we saw when the plagues came upon Egypt, it was a battle of the gods. It was supernatural war. It wasn't just two armies colliding. It was worldview shaping. Who is bigger? Who is stronger? Our God or Yours? When Elijah faced the prophets of Baal, that was what was at stake. Who's going to win? If Yahweh is God, serve Him. If Baal, then serve Him. But stop mediating. Where are you going to put your trust? Where is your hope today? Really. When your life, when the carpet gets pulled out from underneath your life, Do you move into despondency? Or are you still on the exact same rock, the exact same hope? Or is your hope somehow built on the circumstances that as long as they're okay, all is well. But when my life goes down, now I'm going to begin to doubt the bigness of God. And Sennacherib, through Rav Shaka, begins to call into question the ability of Yahweh. What other God out there has been able to stand against us? That's what happens when trials come. The promises of God begin to be called into question. And you and I are faced with, will we trust like Hezekiah trusted in a big God? Or will we doubt? Where's your heart today? So, God raises up His prophet Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't show up a lot in this book, but he, he gets two chapters. Hezekiah first pleads to God in 19.4. It may be that Yahweh your God heard all the words of Rav Shaka. Isaiah, hear this, pray for me. It may be that Yahweh your God has heard all these words whom his master the king of Assyria has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that Yahweh your God has heard. Therefore lift up your prayer Isaiah, pray for me. And Isaiah responds, say to your master, talk to Hezekiah, tell him this. Thus says Yahweh, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So the prophet speaks. Don't worry about what he's saying. I'm going to move him away, and he's not going to overcome Jerusalem. And not only that, when he returns back to his land, he'll get chopped up himself. Now, it's just coming from one man, Isaiah. Isaiah, and if we, when we get to his book, we'll see that not many people like to listen to Isaiah. So why should Hezekiah? Well, Maybe one reason is because Isaiah had prophesied that Assyria would destroy the northern kingdom, and they did. That was in 723. This is 701. Who am I going to listen to? Am I going to listen to the word of God that has proven itself in my own life in the past? Or am I going to doubt it right now? So you've got the voice of God through Isaiah the prophet and then you've got the king of Assyria who's calling himself the great king who has a track record of destroying every single kingdom and filleting the people, putting them up on toothpicks and chopping off their heads. How serious are you about really trusting in God when the times get hard? So Isaiah makes his proclamation and then the Rav Shaka sends a letter that repeats everything, but with a different angle. Before he was questioning, what other God has been able? And now he's going to question, do you really think God cares for you? It's about God's faithfulness. 14... uh, Chapter 19, 14 through 19. Uh, Wait a second. Am I in the wrong spot? Okay, my verses are messed up, but look at verse 10. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. Don't let Him deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Israel. Don't trust his promises. Before it was about ability, now it's about his faithfulness. Don't trust his promises. So Hezekiah prays. This is an amazing prayer. Verse 15. He takes the letter, he lays it out before the Lord at the temple. O oh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, listen to what, how he prays. The God who's enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. He's reminding himself. You're not just the God of Israel. You are the God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You're the one that I'm counting on right now. I need that kind of power to intrude into my brokenness. Incline your ear. The one who made heaven and earth, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes. Don't be deaf. Don't be deaf. Hear and see, O Yahweh. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Yahweh, the kings of Assyria... Listen, this is true. The kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands. They've cast their gods into the fire. But why? Why were they able to do this? For they were not gods. That's why they were able to win... But they were merely the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Yahweh our God, save us please from the hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Yahweh, are God alone. This reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when Paul says, God, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of what I endured in Asia. Indeed we suffered to the point of death. We had the death sentence upon ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but on God who raises the dead. And then he says, I urge you to pray for us so that in the end when God shows up there might be manifold levels of thanksgiving on the far reaches of the globe praise God he answered the prayers. Why would God, even right now, be allowing you to have a period of brokenness, of darkness, of suffering? One, He wants you in your humility, in that dependence, to cry out to Him because it's going to give Him an opportunity to display Himself as big. And then He wants you to, he, He's putting you in a place where He wants you to reach out to others, asking for prayer. So that when he shows up, not only you will give him praise, but many, 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 many others. So the nation is trembling, Hezekiah is praying, and God answers through his prophet Isaiah. Look at 1925. Here's God's response. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins. That's God's response to Sennacherib. You think you're controlling all this? I planned it long ago, and I alone am giving you the victory. Cancer overcoming right now, I alone have allowed it. It's not random. You're not having a job right now. It's not random. I have ordained it to be in order that I might display my power on behalf of those that I love, on behalf of those who are trusting in me. I will show up. God will not let Himself be viewed as small. Every death that occurred as Assyria pushed its way through God says, I planned it long ago, I kill, I make alive, I wound, and I heal. And therefore, even when our minds are exploding, God, I don't understand why I'm where I am. The only hope we have is the one who holds tomorrow, who held yesterday, and who holds tomorrow, who's still on the throne. And Hezekiah is looking to him, absolutely confident that nothing is happening apart from his direction. And yet he says, That's not a God I'm going to run from. He's the only one in whom I can hope. If he's that big and he's not being caught off guard, the only hope I have, he alone is the Savior. So what does God say He's going to do? 32 through 34. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it, but the way that he came, by the way that he came, by that same way, he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. How can God do that? He's not even a, he's not even a Sennacherib,'s not even to raise an arrow, like he did to Lachish. What could God do? Will you trust him? So? We read about the fulfillment of the word, what happens. But before I tell you what happens in the scripture, I want you to know what Sennacherib had to say. Because Sennacherib is up in Assyria. He's going to return now to, to Assyria. And he wrote down what we call the Sennacherib prism. All of these are letters And they tell of his exploits as he conquered kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. And what does he say? In my third campaign I marched against Hathi, the awesome splendor of my lordship, overwhelmed Lulli, king of Sidon, and he fled overseas. The terrifying nature of the weapon of the god Asher, my lord, overwhelmed his strong cities. What is the terrifying nature of the weapon of the god Asher? It's him! Me! Sennacherib! I am that terrifying weapon. As far Hezekiah the Judean, I besieged 46 of his fortified walled cities and surrounding smaller towns, which were without number, using unpacked down ramps and applying battering rams, infantry, attacks by mines, breaches, and siege machines. I conquered them. I took out 200,150 People, young and old, male and female, horses, donkeys, camels, cattle, sheep without number and counted them as spoil. He himself, Hezekiah, I locked up within Jerusalem, his royal city like a bird in a cage. I surrounded him with earthen works and made it unthinkable for him to exit by the city gate. His cities which I despoiled, I cut off from his land and gave them to Metinti, the king of Ashdod. I imposed dues and gifts For my lordship on him. He, Hezekiah, was overwhelmed by the awesome splendor of my lordship. And he sent me after my departure to Nineveh, my royal city, his elite troops, his best soldiers, which he had brought in as reinforcements to strengthen Jerusalem with 30 talents of gold, 800 talents, and he sent me all this stuff. He says, now we read this story. Verse 36, Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed... Oh, sorry. So God promises, I'm going to defend this city. Verse 35, And that night the angel of Yahweh went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib king of Assyria departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. And he made things like the Lachish reliefs and the Sennacherib prison. But he didn't tell this part of the story, the part we've just read. "...and as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach his god, Adram, Melech, and Sherezer his son struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon his son reigned in his place." The kings of the world don't want to tell when they get defeated. But he doesn't explain why he left Jerusalem the way that he did. And this text says, in the middle of the night, God shows up and executes 185,000 Assyrian warriors that quick. He can either do that kind of work in your life or he can give you unbelievable grace to persevere in suffering. Either one is going to magnify his greatness. Either one. The hope of this text is that He is able and He is faithful. And the call of this text is put your trust in Him. That's the message of the book of Kings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need a God who is able and a God who is faithful. Please, show up in our lives that are so broken, so cursed, so dark, can feel so hopeless, but they are not without hope. Because Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Help us to come awake and not be asleep. To recognize the victory that Christ has won and the hope that that is given. You who did not spare Your own Son but gave Him for us all will with Him graciously give us all things including perseverance through suffering. Prove Your worth today. Not only in our lives but in the lives of those we love. Keep them believing. Keep them trusting. Keep them persevering. Help us to trust them to You. Thank you for messages like we see here in the book of Kings. We are never hopeless when we have a God who can do the impossible. Nothing is impossible with you, and we put our trust in you through Jesus. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi meyer Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.